This New America NYC event took place on May 22, 2017, and is titled Putin's World Tour, and features Joshua Yaffa, Joe Becker, Noah Shackman, and Miriam Elder. Good evening. So thank you to the Core Club for inviting us in. Uh, I'm Alana Breitman, Director of New America New York, and New America is a think tank that focuses a lot on technology policy, media, we have a big international security program. And here in New York, we focus on lifting the ideas and innovation that we see in New York to a national and international conversation. Um, and we're very lucky that one of our fellows, uh, Josh Alfa, was in town, and so we decided to build an event all around him. And I'll, I'll kind of do introductions uh, from left to right. So Josh is a New America fellow, and he's currently based in Moscow. So he's going back in the next couple of days. So um, we're glad we're doing this in a private event. Uh, he's a correspondent for The New Yorker. And he's reported from Russia for, uh, for numerous publications and was pre previously an associate editor in Foreign Affairs magazine. And if people had missed it, you, you should Google him because he had two great articles of recent note in The New Yorker, uh, one with David Remnick uh, about a month ago and one that popped up this morning that I'm going to ask about, and it's super interesting. Next is Miriam Elder, who's world editor for BuzzFeed, and she was BuzzFeed's first foreign and national security editor. And Before that was the Moscow correspondent for The Guardian, living there from 06 to 13 during some really interesting political transitions. So I look forward to hearing from Miriam. And Noah Schachtman uh, is the executive editor of The Daily Beast, previously executive editor for News and Foreign Policy, where he directed the magazine's coverage of breaking events in international security, intelligence, and global affairs. He also was the founder and editor of Wired Magazine's popular national security site, Danger Room. And he wrote for Wired one of the best uh, articles I've ever seen on Russian cybersecurity and a particular player that, again, we're going to talk about later today. So this is a far... Uh, ranging discussion. We'll start with co a conversation up here and then open it up to the audience. But in preparing for this panel, I kept thinking, Russia is the gift that never stops giving. Every day we see some news, whether it's Russia's foreign policy, uh, uh, our own foreign policy, what's happening in Washington. So much to ask. Um, and in fact, funny enough, I was uh, on my way here in a cab, happened to be a Russian cab driver, clearly, because he was listening to local Russian radio, where they were discussing uh, whether or not Trump will be impeached. So there you go. It's very much a New York story. Um, but let me start with kind of a broad question for all three of you. You've all reported uh, for Moscow. Obviously, Josh is living there now. And um, I'm just curious what that's like, both how you feel about your personal life and, should I say, safety, um, and access, and... Um, both to the Kremlin officials as well as your ability to really get at the inner workings of Russian society? I'll, I'll start. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a hard question to answer for me just because I don't have much of a relative um, uh, sense of how being a journalist anywhere else works. Uh, Russia is basically the only place really I've done. Uh, it's the only place I've done this kind of reporting uh, at any length of time or, or over such a sustained period of time, so I don't know exactly Maybe I don't know what I'm missing being a journalist uh, in the U.S. I mean, it certainly seems like being a political reporter in Washington 
you sort of have no shortage of people who are these days running to you to leak into your ear and give you various bits of gossip. It sort of seems like you're almost turning people away who come to show, uh, uh, tell you stories about um, the chaos of the White House, which is definitely not the case uh, in in Moscow. Nobody is is running to you to uh, tell you about. Uh, you know, how Putin screamed at his aides uh, the night before or how they're fighting amongst themselves or really anything about the decision-making process inside the Kremlin, which uh, is uh, a black box and, and very much by design a black box. And it's it's not just, I think, because Kremlin officials are, uh, it's partially because Kremlin officials are by the nature secretive. There's a lot of them under Putin who come from um, the KGB or security services and have, or, or sort of steeped or schooled in that somewhat paranoid conspiratorial mindset and are good uh, at maintaining it. But I think that there's back to um, uh, the time of Stalin, uh, this notion that in part Russian power kind of rests on this notion of uh, mystique and this kind of Byzantine impenetrability uh, to Russian decision-making, not just outward facing in terms of the rest of the world, but also inside Russia uh, itself vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis Russian citizens, uh, keeping up this um, veil of, uh, if not secrecy, just you know, keeping the governing of the state, this black box to which not just American journalists, but also Russians themselves don't have a lot of access or, or understanding about um, what that looks like. And I read recently an opinion column, I don't know where, it was in the Russian press somewhere, just remarking about how uh, a Russian journalist had discovered, I guess for the first time, that uh, at least historically, I don't know how it is under Trump, that like the president's, the U.S. president's daily schedule is like a, every day is sent out. I didn't know this myself, working really as a journalist in Russia, not in the U.S., but, you know, 8 a.m. meeting with this person, 10 a.m. meeting with that cabinet secretary, whatever, all the way through the evening. Um, and the Russian journalist was just flabbergasted at such uh, a journalistic, uh, civic institution, uh, and, and nothing of the sort um, exists in Russia. And I think that's just emblematic of the entire understanding of the role of the press, the, uh, the culture, the political culture uh, of the place. So, I mean, by the time it gets to anyone thinking about uh, bearing their soul or information to an American journalist working for an American magazine, I mean, even Russian journalists working for the Russian press don't have anything like the access that... Uh, American political reporters in uh, in Washington do so. It's a long-winded answer of saying uh, it's it's uh, difficult to get access to decision makers to people um, close to power. Uh, I suppose that makes the job harder than it would be elsewhere. But I I guess I have the gift of not having anything uh, to to compare it to. Um, so I left Russia three and a half years ago, so my perspective is a bit dated, and I think a lot has changed since uh, the war in Ukraine, and things have gotten uh, worse and worse. There was kind of this time in the 90s when uh, you could meet with you know, oligarchs and what have you, and people who had some sort of access to the chaotic thing that was power in the post-Soviet age, um, and into the time that I was there, you know, you had um, Putin's spokesman's mobile you could call him at any moment now as I understand it he just holds like a weekly call with uh, the wires so I think that what's interesting for me to watch from afar is how um, it's gotten worse and worse and worse and even in you know to me three years isn't that long <laughs> but uh, even in three years it's changed um, changed to such a degree but you know you would get um, you would try and speak to 
analysts who are blessed by the Kremlin, who you knew were given the message that was uh, was there to spread to to the media and stuff like that. You could meet with people inside the Duma and MPs who, if they didn't have information, at least they had spin and some kind of insight into the messaging that the Kremlin wanted to give. Um, and then, of course, the you know the reliance on on local journalists who. Um, if not access to to the halls of power, had access to different parts of Russian society. And when you bring up the question of, uh, you know, what what was it like safety wise? I think um, any any reporter that you would ask in Moscow would probably wish to not talk about their own safety, but the safety of Russian journalists. So of course, put themselves uh, into into much um, more danger than a Westerner ever would. Thanks. And you, you talked about, you know, this is all about information. So I want to turn to, I think, one of the most interesting topics, and which is information and uh, the use of media. And I want to couple that with cyber attacks. So what we've seen play out, um, uh, certainly as testified to by our intelligence community, is uh, Russia's role in sort of the info wars, which isn't quite cyber attacks, as well as its role in um, using tools of uh, cybersecurity to actually try to shape pretty significant policy, right? Our own elections, possibly French, possibly German, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I see those as kind of complementary roles, and I'd love for both of you to talk about it. And just as a little bit of a preview, something that um, Noah wrote about some some years back, uh, which is kind of a uh, an interesting twist is that one of the major Russian cybersecurity companies, uh, Kaspersky Labs, headed by somebody who was trained by the KGB, which is not unusual, but who is seen as fairly close to the Kremlin. Um, you know, Noah did a really remarkable portrait of him. And, uh, but, you know, a piece of what's really interesting is that the company runs in the U.S. and the company has government contracts. Um, so I guess the question really is, can, can Noah and Miriam, can you all talk about this sort of dual info wars, use of info, use of cyber, um, what that says about Russia's um, both abilities and strategy and maybe turn even to our own vulnerabilities? That's like a big question. Ten layers, sorry. Okay. Um, well, I'd start out by the question by um, saying that uh, one of the two groups that hit the uh, Democratic National Committee um, last year uh, actually went after a number of journalistic uh, organizations first, including ours. Uh, that would be the uh, Cozy Bear Group, um, so-called. And, um, you know, they sent a incredibly sophisticated, um, what's known as phishing email um, to our reporters in which um, – it looked like a real Google password reset, um, except it was to Google with a Q as the, and, um, and this was the interesting part is that unless it, it only went to, it only worked for your and your account only for if, if anybody else tried to test it, if you're like it administrator tried to test it, it just went to normal Google. But if you did it, it went to Google and uh, when it did, then you were toast, and it had all your, um, it had all your information and all your contacts and your banking information and all that. Luckily, the people they went after, um, they went after some of the more sophisticated people in our newsroom, and we were able to spot it. But you know, it would it would be easy to see how that wouldn't be spotted. 
Um, and that's just part and parcel of the fact that this was, I mean, I think now you've got to say inarguably the most successful intelligence operation since World War II. Um, you know, the idea that you could, you know, majorly influence an election of a, a strategic adversary. Um, it's a big deal. Um, this campaign had both private actors and government actors, um, just in the same way American um, cybersecurity and intelligence work uh, relies largely on outside groups too. So, for example, the um, basically if you read the uh, U.S. government reports uh, attributing these attacks to Russia, there were largely piggybacking off the um, off the work of a, a couple of different private uh, cybersecurity firms. And in the same way, Kaspersky is, has long played a role for that as uh, technical experts um, for the Russian government. What appears to have changed recently is um, that at least people within Kaspersky um, – may have been involved in more offensive rather than defensive roles. Um, and so one of the uh, folks sanctioned in the um, uh, in at the end of December, um, the sanctions that sort of triggered the calls to apparently to General Mike Flynn, to um, Sergei Kislyak, um, one of those was a former Kaspersky employee um, another former Kaspersky employee um, uh, seemed to be rounded up in the um, aftermath of that. And so if that's the case and if if Kaspersky's um, involved in a more offensive role, that would be something new. And uh, that would be something, um, yeah, quite different. Can you comment on the sort of info and social media and fake or real news? I saw it, you, you tweeted just recently about that and – yeah, I, I spend my life tweeting <laughs> um, about that stuff. It's a it's a really huge question. Um, I guess I'll just I'll zero in on on um, my favorite Russian uh, Twitter account, which is the Russian embassy in the UK, uh, and increasingly the Russian embassy in the US. They have the most amazing uh, Twitter accounts. They use like this really twisted uh, humor. They illustrate their tweets with really bizarre art but the other day i think it was just yesterday they um start they t uh, were tweeting about this rumor about seth rich are you guys familiar with you know the conspiracy um sorry you, you should you should probably say it again in case some people know. yeah um seth rich the the dnc staffer who um ended up dead and whose family is in like deep mourning and asking people not to speculate and then this conspiracy theory is growing um, that um, somebody had him killed. And so this is something that had lived in like the deep reaches of the internet and then was surfaced um, almost si simultaneously by Fox News and uh, and uh, this Russian embassy account. And I think one of the most interesting things that's happening is that you do have this um, um, certain vestiges of media on the right um, from Fox News to Breitbart um, aligning with uh, – what <laughs> aligning with basically Russian propaganda messaging. Um, and 
that's that's basically where where all this is going. So the role of a lot of these Russian accounts is I don't know. I'm the, on the one hand, I really just want to laugh at them and and uh, and kind of laugh them away. Um, on the other hand, they do play a role of planting ideas, and they do then get picked up by other malicious actors who feel like they need a source. So then it's not just a conspiracy theory. Then suddenly it's you know Breitbart saying like, well, this is you know an official account is tweeting this. So it is quite malicious as well. And also, I mean, the president himself. Spreads yes. Russian propaganda, right? I mean, I think that's the new twist here, right? So you've got the president of the United States spreading Russian propaganda, and I will bet you $5 right now that Trump talks up the Seth Rich conspiracy in the next two weeks. That's almost a sure shot. I actually have to say just anecdotally, I was I heard from a friend this weekend who reads some of the, not super, super alt-right, but somewhere in between, that theory, not knowing that it was actually being sent around by other sources. Some, you know, a New Yorker, not a Russian descent. Sorry. Yeah, I just want to add two things about Russian propaganda and their uses of it and, and strategic games and so on. And my kind of, uh, I don't know this to be objectively true. It's my kind of subjective analytical sense. Uh, the first, and, and this is not an original idea either. It's something that a lot of people um, have written about at great length and eloquence. Peter Pomerantsev, uh, most notably uh, among them, or the one who I should probably credit for my own, uh, for, for stealing his idea, um, which is that the Russian propaganda in a very important way shifted sometime well, long before uh, the 2016 election, certainly sometime in the, in the Putin era. And it stopped being about um, trying to convince the viewer of some particular truth, uh, about trying to, you know, instead of instead of the recipient of the propaganda message believing X, to believe Y. Uh, but in other words, not if, if before, not just uh, Russian and before that Soviet propaganda efforts, but propaganda in general was about kind of delivering a very particular message and having the viewer or watcher or listener um, believe... Uh, believe some version uh, of events, uh, Russian propaganda efforts evolved in a much more successful way to essentially have the recipient of propaganda not believe anything at all, to, to muddy the information space and to confuse the recipient uh, of, of propaganda, the listener of radio, watcher of TV, into just essentially throwing up their hands and saying, everybody's lying, uh, this is such a morass of information, it's impossible to tell what's true or not true. I sort of, I give up, uh, and, and in that sense, that that's still a net win, uh, maybe of a much kind of deeper strategic variety than having the uh, an individual believe X to be true, having the individual sort of give up on the idea of even of, of believing that X or Y or Z or anything uh, can be determined with any certainty to be true at all. Um, I think that that's uh, that's both a shift and, and potentially a, um, uh, a deeper. Uh, more impressive kind of success for for a propaganda operation, and and the second thing I'll I'll try and say much quicker um, is what uh, an, an official. I'm loosely paraphrasing what uh, someone connected to the security and defense uh, establishment in Russia said to me that went into the New Yorker piece I wrote with um, David Remnick and Evan Osnos about the Russian influence operation, and he essentially said. Uh, listen, you know, you, you people are making a bit too big of a deal about all of this in terms of its actual effect uh, on the information space and therefore on the election. Uh, you know, we're not, um, we being intelligence officers, not just Russian ones, but in a universal sense, we're, we're not al alchemists here. Like we can't, uh, we can't turn water into wine. We, we can't sort of make something uh, out of nothing. 
the reason that these things work, and, and here he spoke kind of obliquely about um, the uh, 2016 election operation without exactly coming out and saying it, but it was clear what he was talking about, that the, uh, the I think he the term he used, the objective preconditions uh, have to be uh, in place uh, for something like this to take hold. And I think that that's, to my uh, personal or subjective eye, the most important thing that maybe is under um, recognized or talked about less here, which is that you know the Russian propaganda operation didn't suddenly make Americans uh, stop believing uh, in the functioning of U.S. democratic institutions. People stopped believing uh, in the fair, just, whatever uh, functioning of U.S. democratic institutions, and Russian propaganda was able to come in and exploit uh, that growing sense of uh, distrust and that growing sense of um, dissatisfaction, but it certainly didn't it wasn't the thing that 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 caused them, uh, it, it, and I think it's important to get that um, causality right. Right, but something else in in your article, I'm sorry, I'll, um, which is interesting. Maybe we'll pick it up in a second. But you actually mentioned that this is not a new playbook. There's very explicit, you know, sort of um, strategy written in I think the '60s. Maybe I have my dates wrong, but clearly under the Soviet, classic Soviet regime. Um, so. That's that's an, another interesting piece when we think about Putin's strategy and where he's drawing his uh, influence or innovation from. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I'm not really an expert in um, intelligence or espionage history at all, but it doesn't seem like the basic um, strategic ideas are all that different. You, you do have technology allows for this stuff to be tactically or like instrumentally used uh, with much more effect. You get a lot more bang for your buck. Uh, I think it was very hard. I think I'm not sure this made it into the piece or not, but like the so we, we I think we talked a bit about the Soviet operation to um, uh, that created the rumor that uh, the HIV virus was uh, created by the CIA uh, and and purposely and kind of knowingly infiltrated out into the world um, by the CIA, uh, a rumor that still has a lot of cachet in certain quarters um, of the world in the United States, but that was a, a KGB um, fiction op operation. But you know, distributing that idea was a much slower and more difficult process. I, I, if I'm remembering the history correctly, they, they sort of created uh, fake pseudo-scientific journal articles that were placed with great difficulty and over a great period of time in some scientific journals, and they had to wait for those scientific journals to then be referenced or picked up in uh, newspapers around the world, and then they did the KGB did what they could to kind of have one newspaper pick up on the newspaper reporting of another newspaper. And, you know, the timeline for this was really prolonged and the, the difficulty of it was um, a high degree of difficulty. But, you know, I don't really have to explain in the age of uh, WikiLeaks, social media, and so on, you can just achieve essentially the same, um, conceptually, uh, the same kind of operation. You can just do a lot faster and a lot easier and with a um, higher degree uh, not exactly of certainty of, of effect, but but certainly um, do the job, yeah, quicker, easier, and with more likelihood of success. I, I mean, the thing I always find so interesting is the line coming out of the Kremlin when there are protests against Putin in the end of 2011 was, don't trust anything, don't trust those protesters, and don't trust the protest movement. They're powered by social media, and social media is a vehicle for disinformation. And then at some point, it seems like they went, oh, wait a minute. Social media is a vehicle for disinformation. Like, this can work for us, not against us. And, you know, it came out the other day that uh, that um, 
some component of the disinformation campaign was buying targeted Facebook ads, um, you know, that the Russians, uh, apparently bought targeted Facebook ads, which means that Facebook wasn't just the vehicle of, um, fake news and propaganda, but actually profited off of it. And I find that fascinating. Well, and on that note, um, kind of going back to look at Russia for a second, uh, I think it's just really always fascinating to understand what's happening within Russia. Uh, and I'd love to, to hear from you guys about that because, um, is there such a media blackout blackout in the meat in the sense that what people in Russia are getting is just none of this, that, there's not even a specter of questioning that's happening in Russia, sort of more broadly. And then very specifically for the economic well-being of your average Russian. I mean, the article that um, came out in New Yorker today that Josh wrote is talking about this, I was going to say the bridge to nowhere, but it's the bridge to Crimea that may still fall of its own weight, given the engineering problems there. But being built by Putin's best pal, um, not financially feasible. The guy gets sanctioned by us. He loses some properties. Putin raises taxes on 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 truckers using the roads he has built, right? And and there are some protests, but the protests seem to go nowhere. So the so that really made me think uh, when I was reading it in general. There is there's this great dichotomy of a small elite around the Kremlin, mostly gaining an incredible amount of uh, wealth. Um, that's always true to be the expense of the broader populace, but it's specifically the Kremlin's policies that are also causing like an ever-growing rift. So what, is, what about the, the average Russian? What, do you, what are you seeing? And then Miriam, I'd love to also hear, because you were living there during the Dedev as well, which was kind of a different, that was part of a different scenario. Like, so what is that, maybe not the complete average man or woman on the street, but the educated Moscow, St. Pete, kind of man or woman on the street? Like, what's, what is that? Um, how do we read the public there? Um, I'll, I'll answer quickly and then pass it to Josh, since he is currently living there and uh, probably knows more than uh, most of us sitting in this room. Um, I think, you know, one of the craziest things to emerge from these protests that Noah referenced earlier at the end of 2011 and then the beginning of 2012 um, was that a lot of us who had lived there, <clears throat> excuse me, for a long time just woke up one day and were, were like, who are all these people? Who are these people who are going to Paris for like long weekends? And who are these people who are eating in restaurants? They're our friends. We have been doing this and just hadn't, we had missed basically the emergence of, uh, of a middle class. Um, they were all around us and we didn't see them until um, they took to the streets in very large numbers at the end of uh, 2011 and, and 2012. So, I mean, but to speak of those as like your average Russian versus your average Russian um, who gets most of his or her news from from TV is obviously a very different thing. To speak to those people, um, they tend to be very well educated and live on the internet and have a diversity of, uh, of sources. Um, but uh, to speak of those people without speaking of you know, the older population who spends most of their time in front of the television, um, I think would, would be unfair. And that's where, you know, the agenda is, uh, is still completely, completely controlled. I check like, I check the state, uh, the TV news, uh, every day. And it's, it's like, um, it's like an alternate, alternate universe. They decide when they want to pay attention to some of the news coming out of the white house. They decide when Syria is the top story. They decide when Syria doesn't exist. Um, and it's a very different, very different and very curated world. Yeah, I get asked a lot and, and, and don't uh, have a very articulated um, or, or 
um, confident answer for myself about how popular Putin is and, and how, um, you know, these we consistently hear about these approval ratings of above 80% and are they real? Do Russians really love him to that degree? Is he so popular? And, and, and um, the answer is I, I don't know. And I think it's impossible to know. And I think the Kremlin is waking up a bit to the fact that maybe they themselves don't know anymore, right? They've created this, um, what uh, in Russian is called the, the vertical of power, un, I was going to say around Putin, really under Putin, uh, in which so much of the state functions in accordance to these administrative and kind of manual controls and edicts issued from the Kremlin. And it, and it is, in some senses, a kind of efficient uh, machine, but it, but it has very bad uh, feedback mechanisms, um, partially because of the control over the media that Miriam was talking about, partially because of the control over politics all the way down the chain, down to the local level. You know, I mean, like the dog catcher of Rizan is, you know, appointed by um, uh, an official of uh, Putin's in, in the Kremlin. And, and that works, that's, that's, that's good uh, um, and if you want to build and administer um, uh, an authoritarian system and it can kind of work, uh, but it's very bad at telling you about, you know, what the situation Rizan actually uh, really is because you don't have the media there, you don't have kind of grassroots politicians on the local level who would feel compelled uh, because of their constituents and, and constituent pressure to address local issues and issues and to move those all the way up the chain. Like all of those feedback mechanisms um, aren't really there. Uh, and, and when you add to that the question of, you know, just for historical and cultural reasons, what happens if you're a pollster and you call or stop on the street a random Russian and say, you know, do you support Putin? I think uh, you're going to get a higher, there's some number, I don't know what it is, 3%, 5%, 15% of people who just instinctually are going to say, yes, of course, um, uh, and not certainly tell a stranger that no, they they uh, hate the president. Um, so it's a very hard uh, question to answer, and it's a hard thing to measure how popular Putin is, how, how widespread is uh, discontent, and so on. I think that these protests from the end of March which started around uh, essentially had an anti-corruption message, but but quickly spread to be kind of anti-system message, very much about a sense of fatigue or exhaustion with the Putin system. It's been around for 17 years now, and by all accounts, looks like Putin will run for another term uh, next year, which would have him um, uh, be present to 2024. That there's uh, a growing sense of... Uh, Essentially, the the message uh, or the narrative of the Putin system is is no longer quite clear, I think, to a lot of people. And there's a sense of well, why, it, uh, if the first however many years of the Putin system were about restoring Russia's um, uh, well-being, pride, uh, material comfort, um, uh, bringing a sense of stability where there had once been a sense of chaos, that that's all been done. And and what is the message? What's the point uh, going forward? And I don't think that. Kremlin has been able to articulate that for themselves and certainly not for the public. And, and that's a problem that uh, Putin's political advisors are uh, increasingly aware of. And this, in these protests in March were a sort of wake-up call to them that they need to have an argument, a reason, a message for the Russian people. And, and they're beginning to worry about the presidential election uh, next year, not because Putin won't win. I'm, I'm confident he will, but it's actually their, their most worried, interestingly, and this gets to the Kind of dy political dynamics at play now. They're most worried about um, voter turnout. Uh, they're not so worried about 
uh, Putin's uh, vote margin, that seems pretty secure. Um, but can they actually just like get people off their butt and to go to the polling booth to, to vote for him? That's where they think they're going to have more trouble because why? what is a person uh, excited about? What is the person, where is that political um, uh, fervency? You know, Putin's support, uh, approval rating may be a kind of passive popularity. Uh, sort of indifference, sure, let him uh, let him rule. But you know, can they get people to actively go out and pull a lever for him one more time? I think that's a question there. Uh, uh, themselves have some doubt about. Maybe um, we turn a little bit to Washington D.C. Um, and uh, I'm not even sure which one of you all to ask. So maybe any of you who want to volunteer about what's going on there now. I mean. If either of the invest any of the three investigations, I think the House still has an investigation. So the criminal investigation and then the, the Senate and the House, if it's still alive, really find anything. Could this be, like really uh, even potentially send someone to a trial? Is this the biggest scandal since Aldra James? I mean, what what's how do we read what's going on in Washington? Or, or are we looking at the right story? You know, Vox published a, uh, an article saying we're not even looking at the right stories, which is interesting. I wrote that story six months ago. Um, I, <laughs> I actually think like there are there are two stories. Like one of them, I do th I do get quite worried. I think that there's a real desire on the part of uh, some Democrats to um, to remove this president um, and to kind of start over. Um, I, that's where all the attention is being put right now. Um, and, you know, rightly so, the attention being put on Flynn um, and that whole crew. My concern is that no matter if there was some sort of collusion between the Trump camp and the Kremlin, um, the Russians did uh, carry out, as Noah said, like the most successful intelligence operation of our time. And... Um, what I'm more concerned about is how do you investigate that and put up the defenses or do whatever you have to do to make sure that it doesn't happen uh, again in the future? Um, to me, I think all the actions now on the criminal side, um, I've been saying this for a while, but um, I think you're going to see indictments, um, indictments plural, um, uh, with people in Trump's orbit. Um, you know, Paul Manafort, um, mysteriously getting $11 million in, um, in money that, uh, turns into condos in in Cobble Hill, um, that, uh, that's being investigated on the criminal side, uh, very thoroughly, um, lying on a security clearance form and, uh, neglecting to talk about your, um, income from, uh, Russian and Turkish related, uh, entities, um, which is what Michael Flynn did. That's a serious crime that comes with real jail time. Um, that's being investigated very thoroughly. Um, and Kushner lied on his security clearance form too. So that's being investigated, uh, thoroughly. Um, also as a, uh, as, uh, Joshua's, um, colleague, Adam Davidson pointed out the other day, um, Trump's whole business enterprise, um, is is very open to to criminal investigation. Um, it, the real estate business is. Does anybody here work in the real estate business? Okay, 
The real estate business has some shady characters in it, right? Sometimes. Um, and, uh, and Trump's more so than usual. Um, so for example, uh, if you want to look at how the Trump Soho was built, uh, uh, it had, uh, more than a couple of shady characters, um, who were connected to the Russian mob, uh, involved in its building. Um, and as Adam Davidson pointed out, if you throw any kind of investigative heft at, at the Trump organization, um, the chances of finding something criminal are, are pretty high. Um, so I think you're going to see criminal indictments like, I don't know when, uh, it could be three months from now, it could be six months from now, it could be two years from now. I, I'm not really sure. Um, and then um, and then we'll see what happens. Um, I think it's going to be a lot slower than people anticipate. Um, you know, I think with, with Bob Mueller, the uh, former FBI um, uh, director now sort of running – at least part of the criminal side of the investigation. I think, um, you know, it's going to disappear off the radar for a while. People are going to be up in arms. What happened to the Russian investigation? And that's because this thing is big. It's um, multi-layered. It's going to happen in multiple jur jurisdictions. Um, but I think in eventually you'll see some indictments. And, and then the last thing I'll note is that, um, you know, there's been this uh, sort of myth uh, of the deep state. Have you guys heard this uh term thrown out that like, you know, the intelligence services are out to get Trump. Um, I don't think that's the case, but I, I, I do think there's, there's actually some strategic leaking going on on the criminal side. It's a well-known, um, tactic of, uh, prosecutors to leak core key bits of information and then see what your targets do in response. So for example, you might leak that, um, Donald Trump said something he wasn't supposed to say to the Russians, right? And then a couple of days later, he's like, what do you mean? I didn't say it was Israel. Like, <laughs> you know, like this guy is such a dumb fuck that, that he's that, no, I mean, it's just true. So, um, uh, so, uh, as a former, uh, FBI, um, assistant special agent in, in charge told me the other day, ordinarily in a complex case like this, you would try to get target number one to wear a wiretap. But in this case, you don't need to because this guy's just going to come out and say it, right? He's going to say, oh yeah, I fired Comey over the Russian investigation. Um, and so I, I think the combination of a, of a um, far-flung criminal investigation uh, combined with Trump's inability to keep his mouth shut, I think is very dangerous for the president. Um, I agree with Miriam that I think impeachment fantasies are fantasy, but I think it's um, going to make Trump's uh, ability to get things done in Washington. Like it's going to really impede that. And depending on how long this thing goes, there could be, you know, major political consequences come 2018 or 2020. So back to the, so what is the real story? You were saying, you know, infiltration, that kind of dangerous uh, phenomenon that happened. And I wonder if any of you, especially you, Miriam, since you wrote the story and are thinking about it, um, are thinking about, well, what are the protections we need to be thinking about systematically? Because now we've seen the capabilities of one service. Back it up maybe one half second and say, what do we know about the analysis that might be going on inside the IC and the law enforcement community with respect to that disinformation campaign before we then get to how to protect the what if. Sure. Because I, you guys have to think, though, that would be very 
I mean, well, we know that 17 U.S. intelligence agencies have agreed that the Russians conducted this intensive campaign, which was, you know, largely based on um, hacking the DNC, hacking the emails of close Clinton confidants, and then working with WikiLeaks to release them and uh, and influence uh, influence the campaign. Whether they were successful or not. Um, I don't think anybody knows, but the fact that it happened uh, is um, an, an undisputed fact, according to the intelligence community. Um, so to me, what becomes interesting is uh, you need a total rehaul of the way the U.S. government approaches its cyber uh, security. The way that the U.S. government reacted to the first tips that the Russians were inside the DNC was a joke, the DNC didn't take it seriously. The FBI, by all accounts, didn't take it as seriously as it should have to begin with. Um, so there's some real rethinking that needs to happen uh, inside the U.S. government. You mentioned um, Kaspersky earlier. Uh, we had a story a couple of weeks back that um, Kaspersky is being used, as being approved for use um, of, to, in agencies across government. There are computers across the U.S. government just with... The, with Kaspersky products sitting on them. Maybe that's fine, maybe it isn't. Um, it deserves serious investigation. So I'm not saying like that I don't think that uh, the criminal investigations or the Senate investigation uh, into all this, um, into Flynn and uh, you know Sessions meeting with Kisilyak and what have you, of course all that's very important, but that's all that we hear about now uh, here in the US and uh, I get concerned when the other side is forgotten. Right, the more systemic side, go ahead. I, I, I'd be curious to, to know what you guys think, but I thought it was interesting the way in the French election, um, Macron was able, uh, who's the guy that won the presidency, and was you know subjected to many of the same kind of uh, hacking and information assaults that uh, that Hillary Clinton was, that he was able to kind of bat them aside. And I mean, it seemed to me there's a couple of different things he did. Number one, he, um, you know, had a little bit more robust perimeter defenses. That's one thing. Number two, he seemed to have come to a tacit understanding with the media that they wouldn't report on this stuff, which seems totally untenable uh, in the US. And then the thing I think is the the coolest is um, he poisoned his own document cache with fake documents um, and then was able to track those fake documents through the distribution chain. That's actually, um, um, I don't know if anybody here is from Columbia, but that's actually something a number of Columbia computer science professors um, have been working on um, sort of technical means for doing that for a long time. He did it sort of more old school. Um, and just put the fake stuff in there. Um, so it's like what Josh said about the disinformation campaign of the Russians. Yeah, it's yeah, and sort of flipping it. Yeah, it's sort of flipping it back. Um, so I don't know if I, any of that stuff seems feasible for the U.S. I, I, I can't imagine like the DNC like being smart enough to. <laughs> do any of that. Um, well, the Macron camp also had the advantage of having seen what happened in the right. U.S., and it does seem like there was awareness and continued awareness in Europe um, that this this stuff is serious. Um, yeah, but also, 
you know, there was this agreement. I don't know if it was the Macron camp that made it with the media or the media made it among themselves yeah, to not maybe. report. But this is, I think this is a question that I know we struggle with in our newsroom all the time. You know, you know that the stuff that WikiLeaks uh, put out was part of a Russian intelligence operation. However, uh, some of the emails were really newsworthy. Um, so there is this constant tension between using something that you know um, someone wants you to use for certain purposes and yet, you know, yeah. I don't know, it's hard. I mean, look, we... We dealt with that. I mean, just to take like a less sinister example, like remember when Sony was hacked by the North Koreans and, um, you know, don't tell anybody like the Daily Beast is kind of a tabloid. And so when, uh, you know, we've got all these like juicy emails between Hollywood executives talking about how Jennifer Lawrence is going to get paid like half as much as our colleagues, like we sort of can't not run with that. So, yeah, I think... I don't know. It's hard to imagine it happening here in the U.S. Um, on the intelligence side, um, I, I think – I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I think it depends on agency to agency. Um, you know, remember that if you're a career sort of intelligence professional, um, you know, you're, you're in general pretty um, disgusted by what just happened. Um, so I think there'll be things on that, you know, sort of like lower level, uh, whether that rises to policy, I don't know. Well, what about the broader policy implications? So there are places where our interest and Russia's in interest may well align. There are places where we actually need to, to share military information like the Syrian airspace. Um, how, how do we think about the way forward on those bigger policy issues when, um, you know, there's this kind of massive turmoil and everything is discredited. Yeah, but there's major parts of the Trump administration that their number one foreign policy goal is to go to war with Iran and Iran is aligned with Russia. So I like, I, I wish there was more cooperation despite everything that just happened. You know, we look at like what happens in space and it's actually pretty cool, right? That like us astronauts go up on Russian rockets all the time and it's fine. Um, but I don't know how much cooperation there might be like business cooperation. I'm sure like somebody will try to sneak in on doing the sanctions on Exxon. Um, but, or, you know, allow, excuse me, allow Exxon to uh, get a waiver to, to go through the sanctions. But I don't know on a broader foreign policy level, I think it's going to be tough because at least the, the current crowd in the Trump administration, are not quite neocons, but like they are, I mean, you can see it in the last week. Like, they want to take the Sunni side in the Sunni-Shia um, contest in the Middle East. And they're, so they're going to be down with Saudi Arabia, and they are out for blood in Iran. And I think for them, the Russia stuff is actually like kind of a sideshow. Let's say very quickly, I was... Uh I went to this press conference in Moscow a few weeks ago when um, uh, Secretary of State Tillerson was in town and, and met with Lavrov and, and Putin. And then after all those meetings, gave a, a press conference with Lavrov. And it was interesting to see how, if you stripped out the personalities and just read a transcript with the names removed, how similar um, the conversation would have sounded to press conferences that, say, Lavrov and Kerry or Lavrov and Clinton uh, could have given, where just issue by issue, uh, each of them was saying, you know, we disagreed on this. We talked about this. We disagreed on that. We talked about this other thing. We disagreed. Uh, and, you know, there, it certainly wasn't some kind of um, 
miraculous love fest that maybe certain uh, in, in in both countries particular camps were expecting or or, or, or pushing for. Um, and it seems like you know when it gets down to when you get beyond just um, Trump and Putin having kind of nice things to say about each other and a certain sort of affection, uh, or I don't know, seeing something kind of similar in each other, or at least uh, maybe Trump seeing something kind of aspirationally, um, uh, uh, kind of the kind of leader he wishes he could be in, in Putin. But when you get beyond all of that, um, as Noah was saying, there just really aren't a whole lot of policy questions where the Trump administration and, and the Kremlin are uh, all that close to pursuing the same goals. And I mean, even stronger than that, actually on all like the major policy questions for both countries, um, whether in uh, Syria, Ukraine, or elsewhere, mm, there isn't really a whole lot of um, overlap uh, or prospect for for um, doing business together of a kind that would be substantively beyond or different than what the two sides were able to do under Obama. So so then the question is, what? so what is... What is Kremlin want or what does Putin want specifically and what are the lessons learned from the last six months because even at what was it in January there were a couple of people um, arrested in Moscow among them someone from um, the Kaspersky labs and there was there was like a whole rumor mill that you know were these people uh, arrested uh, in regard to the operation the election operation was, was there some remorse as in there was blowback that they didn't want. So I'm just kind of curious, what are you seeing about strategy and and then re-strategy, having seen uh, the impact? Yeah, I mean, if, if the strategy, and I think this could be the case, or it's my guess, if the strategy was just let's screw with them, uh, no strategic adjustment uh, required. Uh, <laughs> plan is going great. Uh, uh, that, and that's ultimately my suspicion. I don't think that uh, Putin is both a uh, pretty realistic guy and also one who's pretty suspicious and cynical about um, other people's motives and what other people can deliver. I, I really don't think he ever allowed himself the fantasy that if Donald Trump was elected president that you know the next day it would be kumbaya between the United States and um, and Russia and he would lift the sanctions and he would recognize Crimea and the whole list. Like I don't think I think the other people in uh, the Kremlin or certainly in the Duma where they drank champagne when Trump was elected and so on they allowed themselves those fantasies, but I don't think. I don't suspect that that Putin did. Um, you know, Putin saw, in, in Putin's view of the world, uh, you know, the United States not only had been trying to undermine his own um, uh, uh, hold on power, but had, you know, gone around the world upending regimes and fomenting revolution in Ukraine twice and sending in uh, the fighter planes to Libya and look at what the mess they made there. Uh, and, you know, I don't think he saw... What later became and, and, and is to us this sort of uh, kind of uh, extremely uh, this kind of like binary the shift from uh, Russia did this and suddenly we're in this whole new era uh, is what they've done is unprecedented and his, like uh, represents this historical breach in the relations between the United States and Russia. I, I don't think Putin sees it that way. Putin just sees like you know we did this little tiny thing that everyone's freaking out about to give them a taste of their own medicine. Like what is, uh, I don't think he sees it as this giant, um, historical breach, uh, that Russia kind of, uh, changed the paradigm of relations between the two countries. And then, and certainly not, didn't certainly didn't change the norms of international behavior. I think Putin would laugh if you tried to suggest that the Russian influence operation represented some new form 
of uh, meddling in the domestic politics of um, other countries. Um, so if the if the goal was to uh, create a kind of strategic uh, disturbance or chaos or undermine the um, uh, stability uh, and credibility of U.S. Uh, political institutions, mm, I think you know plan is is uh, going uh, just fine. And what about um, the circle around him? And you know, people the the the, the people who've been sanctioned certainly have had some of their property seized in some cases. Um, I mean, I, there's no illusion that they're going to sort of be a cabal against him because everything is, is due to him. But are, is there any kind of sort of behind closed doors foment to either use more nefarious means or kind of strike some strategic deals to try to address the, the economic belt that's, that's tight, had been tightened around them? Yeah, I think the question of sanctions, it's hard to measure um, their actual effect because a few things, th three things happened all at the same time, and so it's impossible to isolate the effect of either one of them. One was the imposition of U.S. and, Euro and EU sanctions. Two was the dramatic fall uh, in the price of oil. Uh, and three was the kind of end of the life cycle of um, uh, uh, Russia's economic model that it had used to funnel um, oil uh, and gas profits into the rest of the economy, even if any one of those things, even if oil prices had stayed the same, the model to transfer those profits into economic growth, that was already slowing. But on top of that, oil fell. And on top of all of that, um, sanctions. So uh, my suspicion is actually is that two and three are much more damaging uh, than one. One is you know, pretty targeted to individuals, individual companies or economic sectors, but doesn't really get beyond... Uh, Beyond that, I think it was a pain uh, for these, uh, as the U.S. Treasury Department called them, like the crony oligarchs, the people who were singled out and had their accounts frozen and so on. I think that that was unpleasant for them, but they quickly realized that, you know, they they had um, they had hitched the, their horse to to Putin's uh, and to abandon mid course was risking much for much more than to uh, double double down uh, and, and stick with him. And, and they seem to have been rewarded for that, as I uh, talk a bit about in the piece that came out um, today. Um, uh, oligarchs close to Putin who came under sanction found themselves winning much more in terms of state contracts in, in the years that followed. So they got their uh, reimbursement, maybe more than um, com compensated for the loss of sanctions. Um, but sanctions as to the overall hit on the Russian economy in general, like I said, I think the Russian economy is... is uh, entered into recession. I think it's now out of. I mean, growth is very low, but I don't think it's negative uh, anymore uh, for reasons nothing not to do with sanctions. And actually, sanctions provide a, a very handy argument and narrative uh, to the Kremlin in explaining why the economy fell and why it's not uh, growing now. Even if you know a, a professional economist would tell you no, it's only some small percentage of that. Well, try telling that you know to the producers or, or newscasters on state media who. Uh, when they are explaining to the Russian public why growth went negative or or, or flatlined, well, uh, we all know why. It's because the West is engaging in economic uh, war against us. And I think that there's um, a realization uh, in the Kremlin among top political advisors, maybe it's not so bad, actually, uh, for Western sanctions uh, to remain because they're not really in the cocktail of things that's damaging us economically. It's not really the uh, the biggest thing by far, but it actually provides this great explanatory narrative uh, to the population as to uh, why things uh, are tough. So maybe you know, let's not fight too hard to get them removed.
cheap PR tool. Um, so how about some prescriptions before we open it up? Um, whether, you know, we heard a little bit about hardening our own cyber defenses, uh, but what about other broader strategic policy ways that we should think? Let's erase what, who's in the White House right now and our suspicions about his particular motivations or the cabinet around him. Um, although I think there's plenty of praise from right and left for some, some of the folks um, in government. But more broadly, sanctions hadn't been that, that helpful. Uh, if there's a question about perceptions even globally, maybe outside of Western Europe about um, US and Russia, what, what are some ways to kind of move forward in the next couple of years? What would be your prescriptions if you had an opportunity to advise somebody you think would listen to you for a day? I think it's really hard to make a prescription while ignoring who's, uh, who's in the White House. Um, I think Noah's absolutely right that like Russia is actually a number two story to a lot of the people who are there, including the people who have been praised, Mattis McMaster. Um, I think Iran is like by far the number one thing um, that they're obsessed with, and um, Russia will get caught up in that. If I were to issue a prescription what for US-Russia relations, you know, I think that a lot of the damage, um, a lot of the damage, of course, began well before this election. Um, and a lot of it began um, on the on the Russian side. I don't want to play a game of like you started it, um, but what what helps relations between countries? Uh, oftentimes, it's people to people contacts. It's you know academic exchanges, et cetera, et cetera. Having NGOs, and this is something that Putin has actively um, uh, shut down uh, over the over the past few years. So this is me totally copping out of answering that question. <laughs> You could imagine, I don't, I don't think this is going to happen, okay? But I mean, one could imagine a universe in which the U.S. and Russia teamed up on ISIS, right? Like that's, there's some universe in which that's going to happen. The small problem is Russia's totally in bed with Assad and Assad's killed a lot more people than ISIS ever will. So I don't think that's going to happen, but you, you know, one could imagine on counterterror, um, that there'd be some, you know, s s some common ground. Um, one could imagine if another, you know, sort of Somali pirate situation style situation came up, that there could be some common ground. One could imagine if um, the current administration believed in climate change, that there could be some common ground in all of these things, but all of these things I'm talking about are like on earth two and here on earth one, like that, I don't think that stuff is going to happen. And so, um, you know, sorry, I'm just being a But can I reporter. say something on that? It's just an interesting um, anecdote. I was speaking to somebody, a diplomat from a Nordic country. So they, they know about climate change and they know about Russia yeah. and they, the, that opinion, but it seems to be pretty well informed was that Climate change is not so bad because it's uncovering, for the, from a Russian perspective, it's uncovering resources um, as some of the ice cap melts up there. So in the short term, and it's also opening up some of the channels into Plus it's fucking the water. cold in the winter. And <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's just the Chinese moving in anyway because the Russians don't yeah. live there anymore. <laughs> I just say very quickly that as an observer, w watching this uh, watching the story, the, the Russia story, 
in the U.S. as an observer from Moscow, it really is palpable how much uh, everything connected to Russia, uh, for understandable reasons, has become so politically radioactive uh, in the, in Washington, and uh, anything kind of uh, vaguely, directly, certainly, or even tangentially related to Russia has been connected to this larger. Uh, it, it falls under this uh, same political cloud that all of this stuff uh, coming out of Russia's uh, influence operation in the election and 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 whatever the possible collusion or ties uh, of people in the Trump administration, that as long as that cloud exists, I can't see uh, there being the sort of political space to do any sort of deal on anything um, with Russia. I mean, it's gotten absurd that, uh, you know, Trump can't shake hands, Trump can't, you know, laugh with the Russian ambassador without it becoming uh, further proof of his conspiratorial um, well, he can't. Plot. He can't laugh and then say, "Hey, the Israelis have got this spy in Raqqa." You know, like I mean, I think that I mean part of the issue is that, like all, if it had just stayed on the relatively benign contact level, I think then there'd be a chance for to go away. But every time you you peel the layer, sure, yeah. sure, but but. You know, Russia, uh, Trump meeting with Lavrov in the Oval Office is already enough for like a day or two worth of political memes. There's a uh, political litmus test that, that's alive again. And I think that that is no, that uh, alone. Not really. It's more the photographs, right? That it was a Russian photographer that was, and it was it was that the Russians controlled the narrative because the, the meeting between Tillerson and Putin, for example, we got no visuals. Well, there, there was, right, it was the day after Colby, I'm not suggesting there's no reason, there was no I'm not, I'm not in any way suggesting that there isn't, uh, there aren't lots of reasons for this political cloud to exist. The political cloud doesn't exist, uh, like, accidentally. Uh, but nonetheless, it now has become such uh, a loaded uh, issue that I think it does hamstrung uh, both sides. You know, you know what I think will be interesting is, will there be a business effect, right? Like... You know, will it be, you know, can you buy a condo in Miami uh, if, you know, will it, will that be more difficult? Will it be more difficult to sell things over there? I think my guess is the answer is yes, and that's too bad. Um, I think the political stuff is, is going to crowd out um, a lot of, you know, relatively or completely benign well, there is business. In in yeah, there you go. Like that. Self-regulating. Or yeah. On the positive side, maybe yeah. we'll be able to afford apartments. So, yeah. so since we've got since we've got participation, let's let's open yeah. this up. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now it's an official question. So leaving aside the controversy that has blown up in the last few days with all the remarkable revelations, everyone expected a love fest, as somebody mentioned uh, earlier, uh, following the election. Uh, Trump led us to believe that uh, there would be a, a true reset with Russia. Um, and everybody was quite concerned about that. And to, I think, to everybody's surprise, that didn't happen even long before, not, well, it hasn't been long, but even before the controversy has, uh, has blown up. And I'm curious why you think that didn't happen. I think the first thing that happened policy-wise was a Nikki Haley speech at the U uh, statement at the UN where she issued a pretty regular old U.S. Uh, indictment of Russian behavior uh, throughout the world. And do you think that this happened because 
uh, Trump's own people pulled him in that direction. Some say that Nikki Haley got out in front of the president and sort of laid uh, a marker down uh, and Mattis uh, in a similar fashion. Or do we think, do you think that it was never going to happen, this love fest, and that the Trump reset uh, and all these lovey-dovey comments about Putin were for some bizarre reason just to distinguish himself from Obama or who the heck knows what? So just where do you, why do you think that didn't uh, actually uh, develop? Thanks. Um, I mean, I don't think Nikki Haley has like a scintilla of influence on U.S. foreign policy. Okay. Right. So, I mean, but I, like, I don't think she dragged anybody into, um, you know, oh shit, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't be friends with these guys or something. Um, I, I do think that basically Trump was boxed in, right? In that there are certain you know, strategic interests of both countries that are not in concert. So, I mean, I think that's just thing number one. And then thing number two is how friendly are you going to be to this, you know, foreign leader if, you know, domestically everybody's saying that that foreign leader put you in the office in the first place. Like, you know, there's a lot of counter pressure to not look like the Manchurian candidate. And so I think if you combine, you know, strategic interests with political concerns, um, you know, you develop a, a box that's pretty hard to break out of. And then plus, you know, what would he have done? Well, like if they roll back sanctions, like the three of us would write or, you know, like a billion stories about that and, you know, would dig in on every like official that, um, you know, that participated in that. And then the other thing, just back on a point that uh, Joshua made earlier is like, look, in the Trump White House, these guys are more interested in stabbing each other in the neck than they are in like actually getting anything done or, okay, I'm sorry. They're interested in stabbing each other in the neck, like doing some really racist stuff against Muslims and Mexicans. And you know, that's like things one and two. And there's not a lot of room for like, let's have a whole reinvention about our, our relationship with Russia. My question is for Joshua. Can you speak a little bit about what the decision-making process is at the Kremlin? Clearly, Vladimir Putin's in charge, but what's his inner circle look like? How do decisions get made? Obviously, he's very consequential, but there must be really intelligent people who are coming up with these ideas of hacking the U.S. election or doing whatever else they're doing. Great question with a very disappointing answer. Uh, no idea. Um, uh, yeah, the closest I can get to an answer is say one of the reasons we don't have an idea is because that circle is so small. Um, and that can get us some way, not exactly to an answer, but to a kind of vague understand, a sense of maybe how that process works without knowing its exact um, participants. Um, there's clearly an informal um, power structure that exists in parallel to sometimes supersedes, sometimes augments the kind of formal office uh, holders who um, are in the Kremlin and in other ministries uh, and that the informal networks of power, depending on the question and depending on um, kind of Putin's mood and how he thinks he wants to solve it, those people can be much more decisive or influential than people who occupy according to their job title position that would suggest they had authority over the solution of that particular question. Um, there was... Uh, 
uh, I, I remember an article in the New York Times I return to every now and then. I actually don't know where they got this, what their sourcing was on this, but it was right after the annexation of Crimea, and they listed, for Russia geeks, this was like a big moment, uh, that they listed the officials uh, who were in the room or who, I don't know, literally in the room, but who were uh, involved in the decision to um, annex Crimea. And it was about, I think, four four people, uh, uh, all with backgrounds in intelligence or security services. And I, I think that that gives a flavor to how decisions get made, who's involved. It's a very small uh, group of people. Uh, again, what I was talking about before, a, a real that the Kremlin is imbued with this sense of um, uh, paranoia and conspiracy. And I think that there's this drive to always keep things in a small group of people, um, certainly keep decision-making out of the public eye. Decisions are kind of dropped on the public's lap. There's not a lot of um, airing of um, or, or debate that happens in in. Uh, the public eye, but yeah, it's it's a, it's a small group of people. Some of them, maybe, uh, and not always, because those people are the ones formally uh, in charge um, due to their their uh, job title. Um, yeah, that's the best. That's the best uh, I can I can do. Hi, um, I'm Bill McGowan, author and journalist. Um, I found during the election campaign the Hitler tropes associated with Trump to be extraordinary. And jo <clears throat> Joshua, your magazine trafficked in those tropes. Noah, your magazine did too. A lot of people at the time when these things came out, people said they're distracting from what's really going on with Trumpism, creating some kind of symmetry between National Socialism and Trumpism. I wonder also whether analogies, which I think are kind of deranged, I think a lot of people might agree in private, if not public, but are they making it difficult for you guys to really get traction on the Putin analogy? And, you know, that Trump has some kind of, you know, uh, creative, uh, you know, kind of uh, brotherhood with Putin. You know, are people just kind of like, you know, because, you know, the cry wolf, uh, you know, uh, dimension to the Hitler analogy, does it make people just roll their eyes? Because if you look at public polling, it's not really getting all that much traction. So our, our you know, we're, we're, we were looking at Hitler, we were looking at, uh, you know, Mussolini, we were looking at all sorts of authoritarian fascists from the 30s. And is it difficult now for people to take it seriously? I mean, I don't know, dude, like, you know, if like thing number one, when you get into office is to try to functionally ban all Muslim immigrants from the country, like that's like, that's the first card you play. I mean, it was among them, man. It was among them. And I'm, I, I'm just, I, I'm just saying that was like, that's a, that's a, that was one of the first cards out of the. Let's, let's not have, I mean, let's go to questions, not engage. In yeah, that's fine. And like, uh, and like, so, okay. And I'll just say that our uh, pointing out of the similarities between the um, uh, authoritarians of the past and their early careers and what happened in the 2016 
campaign hasn't stopped the White House from leaking the shit out of themselves to us. So I feel like we're doing a... You asked asked if we were being, if in any way those things were inhibiting our reporting, right? Okay. Um, I'm happy to engage with you uh, in this later. I I have actually two questions. I have a follow-up. Two questions that I have is um, when um, we hear stories of uh, Kremlin officials clicking champagne and uh, congratulations to themselves, and then we heard, what, two months later that we hear inner circles of uh, Putin's uh, uh, sort of... uh, uh, vertical structure, as you call it, are pulled out of rooms with hoods pulled over their heads. Uh, is that a, a um, as supposedly the source of that type of leak? Are those all dead true and as they're reported here, or is there a filter put on that that makes it spin sound differently? And then maybe a more global question to ask what America now looks like to the world outside of ourselves and what we're discussing here in what looks like a pretty successful five years for Putin and whether or not you believe, like with Richard Cohn said, that the last thing we should have done was play Ukraine the way we did and that Putin did, that there was a, that the deal that was being offered in Ukraine wasn't quite, um, you know, uh, fair what Merkel and everyone was offering and that created this, the, the seeds of what we're looking at now and then following through that just how well Putin maneuvered us in Syria. I mean, he's looking pretty good from the world. What is it? What? What? Are, I mean, now we have this useful idiot, from my understanding, in the White House from their point of view. So, how how powerful does he look outside from the world, and how weak do we look or not? On the first part of the question, uh, I think it's important to remember that uh, or understand that so many of Russia's political institutions are effectively kind of PR distribution channels that uh, the decision-making apparatus is very small and rests in the hands of, uh, as I alluded to in the previous question, uh, a very small group of people uh, in, in very particular and small number of offices. So, so much of uh, the outward-facing um, ministries, offices, institutions of the Russian political system are, are just there to, uh, as Miriam alluded to in, in the utility of talking to someone in the Duma, for example. It's not because this parliamentarian actually has any decision-making authority or is really like an autonomous political being in any way. They're, they're not. Um, but they are good, actually. They're at least one degree or maybe several degrees closer to the original source of the message, so they can give it to you with some uh, authority or clarity or in, even there, the way that they've cho- chosen or choose to... Uh, deliver the political message might be illustrative because they've you know gotten the message down the chain and they're just closer to the source, the top of the chain than um, than you are. And I think it's kind of that way. Uh, even the Russian Foreign Ministry and and uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, I think, is is something uh, is, is less a policymaker than a kind of spokesman uh, for for Russian uh, foreign policy. So the the clicking champagne, for example. We have to just keep in mind that when a Russian, a bunch of Russian parliamentarians uh, click champagne in the Duma, it's a kind of show in which they're playing the roles of people they think they're supposed to play and characters that they kind of intuitively sense they should be 
um, performing. Um, the second question, maybe on, on Ukraine, I think I, I'm happy to talk to you after. It's sort of too complicated uh, and tedious answer on my part to get into something long and, and drawn out uh, on that. It's a, it's an important question, but one I'm, I can't really have a pithy answer to. But I think that the the both sides, Russia and the United States, I think didn't understand, didn't see through how that conflict, uh, how, how say the Maidan protests might um, end up and what the ramifications and the cascading series of ramifications uh, of Maidan would be if Yanukovych stayed, if he left. I don't think there was a lot of like game theory playing out. Okay, he leaves, then XYZ might happen. Okay, he stays, ABC happens. I think both sides didn't really understand. Both sides were trying to win the day at hand and to win the crisis in the short term without really uh, understanding what a resolution of the crisis in either direction would mean for the interest of either side. And I think that led uh, to a very unclear, uh, messy situation uh, that we have uh, both in Ukraine and kind of on around uh, uh, Ukraine and the Ukrainian issue today. I'll just jump in really quickly on, on Ukraine if I can. Um, and allude to something that Josh said earlier about how, you know, the United States would not, we would not be in the position that, the Russians would not have been able to be successful if uh, we weren't in some sort of position to let them. And I think um, it's important to remember that the reason that Russia has been able to be so successful on the international sphere is in part because of, I think, it's not a particularly popular position, but in part because of U.S. Um, retrenchment, and that's something that started under Obama. And I think, you know, we're going to um, look back on Obama's decision to walk back his promise to bomb uh, Syria uh, as really something that changed the world forever. That's when Russia, that's when Vladimir Putin personally saw, oh, well, we can kind of do whatever we want and there won't be any repercussions. I personally don't think that Ukraine would have happened the way that it did without um, Obama having treated the, uh, the Syria situation uh, that way. Well, okay, we're going to do one more. Yeah, I, th I think the answer is yes, like to both of those sides. I think it's true. Most congressmen have no backbone whatsoever. And I think it's also true that, you know, um, what happened in 2016 is really significant. And, you know, it may be in the end that, I mean, we don't know. We, it's very hard to quantify. We don't, we don't know, right, how many votes were ultimately changed or what kind of turnout was ultimately changed in the 2016 election because of what happened, right? We're, that's, that's an almost impossible um, question to answer. I think so, but I think where the focus is going to go, as I alluded to before, was in what's happened since the election, right? How did, um, how, how did people in Trump's inner circle act um, since the election and what were some of their activities that they did, um, you know, long prior to the election? Um, you know, for example, uh, Manafort's relationship with Yanukovych. Um, so like, 
I think it's both, man. I think we can't let whatever happened, um, like we can't let politicians, U.S. politicians off the hook, you know, for being good stewards of our country just because of this election interference. And I think there's going to be like continued and proper um, attention paid to, um, you know, sort of the ancillary issues that happened out of uh, out of the election interference. Does that answer your question? Sort of ish. Okay. It's like a politician answer. It was like, <laughs> yeah, very, very quickly. I, I agree with Noah in that we should allow for two things to be true at the same time. Like there can we can want to get to the bottom of uh, what happened uh, and to understand it uh, analytically and to understand kind of what the lessons are for going forward. And and there was this Russian operation to try and influence the election. There's no reason to. Uh, there's all the reasons not to ignore that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that uh, investigation or that that effort can't be politicized and manipulated uh, by politicians uh, for their own political self-interest and by the uh, self-interest of the Democratic Party, which, of course, wants to use any uh, tool it can to inflict political damage on Trump. Like that's, But that's politics in America, right? Like things, uh, uh, there can be a, a real... Uh, genuine, urgent issue of public importance that is also used as a political uh, instrument by one party or faction or politician uh, to bludgeon uh, the opposing side. And I guess the hope is that somehow, on balance, uh, the American political system kind of those two sides fight it out in public to the good of the country. Maybe that's you know a naive or um, a antiquated uh, notion of how uh, politics work in America. But but uh, to your specific point if, as I think I understood it I'm, I'm ready to agree with you and I, I was remembered as we were talking just now uh, at, at the same time that Marco Rubio was proposing that the uh, square or the street in front of the Russian embassy in Washington DC be named like Boris Nemtsov I don't know Boris Nemtsov Square I think Boris Nemtsov was an opposition politician who was um, uh, killed shot dead in uh, Russia in 2015 um, at the same time that he was speaking from the floor of the Senate about the need to remember this heroic uh, freedom fighter who stood up to dictator Putin uh, he was refusing to meet with his own constituents back home uh, in Florida at town halls to discuss uh, healthcare uh, reform saying that there was no point in doing so because those people were just uh, paid activists who were sent to uh, disrupt um, uh, events, which is uh, sounds eerily reminiscent of the lines you might hear of a one Vladimir Putin. So uh, I'm not sure that that's uh, a direct answer to your question, but I'm, I'm ready to agree that there's uh, certainly no small degree of cynicism in Washington, D.C., but that, that probably shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. And on that note, so the note being cynicism in Washington, D.C., when we started with Moscow, I want to thank Joshua, Miriam, and Noah for giving up their time tonight to discuss a pretty interesting, important topic. And thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.